So today at the History Cafe is the second of our discussions on how British women got the vote. You remember the old story is that Emmeline Pankhurst and her suffragettes won the vote for Britain's women. But as we saw last time, when you look at what happened in the months that led up to the moment women finally got the vote, that's February 1918, the suffragettes were nowhere to be seen. Instead, behind all the parliamentary wrangling and debate was a very clever campaign by a completely different organisation of women led by the veteran suffrage campaigner Millicent Fawcett. When women got the vote, it was their victory, not the suffragettes. But, we hear you saying, surely nobody would have even been talking about women's votes had it not been for the suffragettes' campaign before the First World War. That's the chaining themselves to railings, the hunger strikes and the forced feeding, and the women Emmeline Pankhurst organised to work in the munitions factories once war started. That's surely what won the vote for women, not just the admittedly brilliant last-minute deals done by Millicent Fawcett. Well, is that true? Today we're going to go back into the end of the 19th century to understand the women and the men who began the campaign for women's votes. What we discover is that by 1900, a majority of MPs were already in favour of giving votes to women. Uh, Which leads you to ask why Emmeline Panker set up what came to be known as the suffragettes. What on earth was she trying to achieve? Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Cafe, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. Okay, so the usual story is that Emmeline Pankhurst and the suffragettes rescued the campaign for women's votes from obscurity after a decades-long campaign that had just run out of steam. What we're told is that it was the suffragettes who finally made votes for women an urgent question that British politicians had to face. We don't think that's true. But because it's such a deeply popular belief, and because in the 1960s it became among some campaigners a sort of feminist article of faith... We want to deconstruct the story of women's votes before the First War very carefully. And let's say from the start that we're mainly using research by women historians. And that we believe that women did win the vote, but not the women of Emmeline Pankhurst's suffragettes. It was won by a great number of unsung women heroes who deserved to get the credit for what they achieved and not have the credit stolen from them by someone else. So we need to go back, first of all, to 1851. The census that year confirmed what everybody already knew. There were more women in the United Kingdom than men. Now, if anything, the imbalance was getting worse. What it meant in practice was that fewer than half of the women aged 20 to 40 were able to get married. And why did it matter? Well, it mattered because it was difficult for women to get jobs to support themselves. Well, not so much working-class women who had, throughout history, laboured in manufacturing at home or in workshops and were now, at least in some of the northern towns, crowding into the new mills. Many of them, probably an increasing number, were actually the family breadwinners. Other working-class women were more than completely occupied, raising children and running homes. But in the growing middle class, or for any women who hoped to do something different from housework, 
There were few jobs they could do besides being governesses, teachers or seamstresses. The point is that without a job or without a husband or a well-to-do family to subsidise them, middle-class women faced destitution. In 1894, my great-great-aunt, Edith Olivia, was hoping to get a place at Oxford. But her father wouldn't pay for her to go because he didn't pay for the education of women. She wrote in her journal, quotes, If I'm not married, I must earn my living. At present, I'm absolutely unqualified. Well, even in 1894, Edith Olivia knew she would probably have little choice but to marry or become a governess, a teacher or a seamstress. Now, many working women no doubt wished, quite justifiably, that life treated them better. Problem was, there was all too little they could do about it. But middle-class women had more time and more leisure. They were in a position to meet and organise and lobby. And the result was a bewildering variety of late 19th century campaigns to improve women's lot. What many at the time called women's emancipation. Now, we shouldn't accept the lazy late 20th century notion that women had always been oppressed and treated as second-class citizens. The reality was always a lot more complicated. It's an enormous subject, as you can imagine, far too big to discuss here in any detail. But to take just one example, married women's property legally belonged to their husband, a technicality known as coverture. However, as historians like Margot Finn and Dorothy Thompson have shown, In practice, coverture had become an irrelevance. In practice, women controlled their own property, and if ever the actual legal situation arose, it came as much of a surprise to husbands as to wives. And in fact, I know from my own research in the early 18th century that there were plenty of women running businesses or acting as executors to wills, for example. But from the 1860s, there was a significant series of movements to change the status of women and bring women's issues properly into public debate. Women campaigned against coverture, naturally. Women campaigned to get the vote in local elections. They campaigned against the trade in young girls sold into prostitution. They campaigned to have venereal disease treated more seriously. They campaigned against vivis sanction, the suspicion that certain doctors were performing unnecessary operations on women because they got a sexual kick out of it. Jack the Ripper may or may not have had something to do with that, as we'll see at another discussion at the History Café. In the 1890s, there were vigorous debates on the future of marriage. A few couples were already removing the obey business from their vows and merging their surnames. And there was a movement, admittedly among a tiny few, for free love and open relationships. And this is the 1890s. The point here is that, far from the flop we're usually led to believe, these campaigns were very successful. In the 1901 census, a quarter of all women were in paid work, even though nearly half of them were still in domestic service. Actually, many more were probably working part-time or informally, as they do now, and this was often unrecorded in the census. It was all a very long way indeed from being perfect, but for the time, it was real progress. A series of married women's property acts between 1870 and 1893 pretty much did away with coverture. Hooray! Women won the right to the guardianship of their children. Divorce became, well, easier than it had been before. More couples, especially middle-class ones, used birth control. Family sizes fell. Women won the right to a basic education and to vote for and to sit on local education boards. There were girls' high schools in most towns, and from 1869, colleges for women opened in Oxford and Cambridge. 
Women had in fact won the right to vote in parliamentary elections in a number of British territories, the Isle of Man in 1881, New Zealand in 1893, various parts of Australia from 1899. So you could say women's emancipation was making excellent progress, even if there was still a long way to go. And in case we imagine that this was only due to the heroic campaigns of these Victorian women, we only have to look around the room for a moment to realise that this was part of a broad social change that was occurring throughout the world. Before the First World War, women would, without any violent struggle at all, win the parliamentary vote in Finland, Norway, Denmark, Iceland, Portugal and a number of the American states. In fact, women were already winning the vote in Britain. The old story is that Emmeline Pankhurst founded the suffragettes in 1903 because the campaign for women's rights, especially the vote, was going nowhere. But it's simply not true. Women, with some men sympathisers, had made remarkable progress in the previous decades. Of course, everything wasn't yet sorted, if we mean complete equality. After all, it still isn't sorted today. But an impressive amount of progress had been made. And women in the United Kingdom were even making good progress on getting the vote. In 1869, women had won the right to vote in town elections, in 1888 in county elections, and in 1894 in parish and other local elections. So by 1900, there were about a million women who could vote in these local elections. And from 1907, women wouldn't just be allowed to vote, they could actually serve in all forms of local government. But women were also beginning to play a role in national politics. They were, for example, now playing a more and more important part in getting male MPs elected. A change in the law in 1883 limited the amount that parliamentary candidates could spend in elections. So every candidate for a parliamentary seat suddenly needed a volunteer political association to help him in his campaign. And many of these volunteers were women. It's no surprise there. Hmm? At least half of the members of the new Conservative Primrose League were women. Local women's liberal associations were coordinated into a national league and working class women also joined women's cooperative guilds which campaigned for important things like maternity benefits, family allowances and free school meals. And the growing importance of women in politics was being reflected in Parliament. A significant and growing number of MPs believed that women should have the vote. Women's suffragists calculated that from the early 1880s a majority of MPs were in favour. You don't really hear that. No. It's difficult to prove, and there were a couple of narrow losses, 1891-2. But historian Martin Pugh has calculated that it was certainly true by the end of the 1890s that a majority of MPs were in favour of giving women the vote. We should say that again. By 1900, before the Pankhurst suffragettes had even been founded, a majority of MPs were consistently in favour of giving women the vote. The debate in Parliament had already been won. During the 1890s, Pugh points out, a majority even of backwards foot-dragging Tory MPs shifted at least towards giving middle-class women the vote. It was entirely logical. The various reform acts of the previous 60 years had added 4.5 million working men to the electorate. Well, they were hardly likely to vote for a Tory party made up of landowners, capitalists and financiers. 
What better, therefore, than to dilute their influence with thousands of middle-class women's voters? For example, the Tory Lord Robert Cecil, descendant of our gunpowder plot Robert Cecil, went round arguing that women should have the vote because they had a strong sense of public duty. In the 1860s, 91% of Tory MPs had been against giving women the vote. By 1897, 55% were in favour. Meanwhile, the Liberal Party has split over Irish Home Rule, so its voting record is more complicated. But when the Liberals won a landslide 400 seats in 1906, fully two-thirds of Liberal MPs were said to be in favour of giving women the vote. In fact, every time there was a vote in the Commons on giving women the vote between 1897 and 1911, the majority of MPs were in favour. So the old story just doesn't stand up. The militant tactics of the Pankhurst Women's Social and Political Union, the WSPU, the suffragettes, founded in 1903, were not necessary because the previous suffragist campaigns had been so somnolently unsuccessful. Middle-class drawing-room affairs which had failed to make headway. Women's emancipation had taken huge strides. In the House of Commons, the argument for women's votes in parliamentary elections had been won, years before the Pankhurst WSPU was even founded. The old story that the Pankhurst and the suffragettes won the vote for women seems to be falling apart. In 1916, 17 and 18, when Parliament finally voted to give women the vote, the Pankhurst and their suffragettes had nothing to do with it. All the hard work behind the scenes was done by Millicent Fawcett and her constitutional suffragists. And even before 1903, when the Pankhurst founded their WSPU, the Women's Social and Political Union, soon to be nicknamed the Suffragettes, a majority of MPs were in favour of giving women the vote. Millicent Fawcett's lot had already won the debate. Now, all of this completely changes the way we have to understand the WSPU, Suffragettes. At the time the WSPU was founded in 1903, there was a very specific problem. The successful campaign to get the vote for women had somehow always been blocked in Parliament. Despite a majority of MPs being in favour, 22 bills for women's votes had so far come and gone without a single one of them getting further than a second reading in the House of Commons. Shocking. But what on earth was going on? Well, for years, historians have written and school students have learned that the reason women had not got the vote in Britain was because of a parliamentary quirk. That is, the majority of Liberal MPs were in favour of women's votes, but the Liberal leadership was against, because they believed women would vote Tory. And by contrast, we're also taught the Tory leadership was in favour, for obvious reasons, but the Tory backbenchers were against because they were, well, conservative. Fuddy-duddy old and young public school fogies who wanted women to stay at home. Now, we can already see that this doesn't work. By 1900, a majority of both Liberal and even Tory backbenchers were in favour of giving women the vote. The fundamental difficulty was that the leadership of neither Tory nor Liberal Party would commit themselves to do anything about it. Well, now we've got to the heart of the problem. 
If we're going to understand what the suffragettes or any of the other Edwardian campaigns for women's votes were about, we need to disentangle specifically why the leading politicians of the time were so reluctant to make any concessions and what could be done to persuade them. Well, the first thing you have to face is that in 1900, very few people in society at large, outside the campaigning groups, were bothered about women's votes one way or another. I know it's hard to grasp now and not something that most of us want to hear, But the fact was that by 1900 in the country as a whole, women's votes hardly raised a murmur. Very few people were bothered. The press took very little notice of votes for women. The Times, for example, with a small but exceedingly influential readership, was scornful of the female suffrage campaign. The paper's editor, George Buckle, was completely unsympathetic. One biographer wrote, quotes, His general attitude towards innovations was that they were probably dangerous. (laughs) Well, you may argue the Times was bound to be against women's votes because it was run by men, but in fact it wasn't. The manager's wife, Ethel Bell, was said to be as much in control of the paper as her husband, Charles Mobley Bell. But although she spent much of her energy campaigning for social reform and the control of prostitution through the paper, Ethel Bell was resolutely against women's votes. According to historian Anita Sama, in her so far unpublished thesis for St Andrews University, the Times also prided itself on reflecting public opinion. Much, much later, in 1916, the paper would, for example, swing definitively behind the campaign for women's votes. So its indifference up till then may well be a significant barometer of a much wider lack of interest in women's votes. The fact was that none of the contemporary papers, except notably the Manchester Guardian, was in favour of women's votes. The plain fact is that most women in the late 19th century were also uninterested in the campaign for votes, or they were positively against it. We imagine, because women's votes seem so obvious to us today, that women must always have wanted to vote. But however much we want it to be true, it just simply isn't. In the early 1900s, in British society as a whole, very few people, men or women, were interested in whether or not women had the vote. In 1911, a journalist, Stephen Reynolds, published Seems So. It was subtitled A Working Class View of Politics. Now, this is to jump forward a few years, but in this context, it's worth doing. Reynolds was a left-of-centre journalist who had by then been working with Devon Sea Fishermen for eight years. Seems so is a book that he wrote with two of these Devon fishermen, father and son Bob and Tom Willie. Some of it's in Devon dialect, which you'll have to excuse us if we attempt it. Anyway, there's a chapter on women's votes, and it begins, In London, the suffragettes have held up public business. Here, this is 1911, here, 150 miles from their town, Their agitation scarcely stirs us. Well, they describe a child coming home one day and telling their mother that one Miss Penley Jones is holding a suffrage meeting and that there'll be a free cup of tea. You go back, replies the mother, trying, writes Reynolds, to cook dinner, iron and nurse the baby at the same time. And tell Miss Penley Jones that I don't intend to mix myself up with the likes of they. And I got my own cup of tea in house, thank you, without wasting my time with Chattermix. They don't give me tea when they want naught. Mrs. Perring, at the authors dryly, doesn't wish for a vote and she does not believe that most working women do. Now, let's leave aside Mr. Perring's comment 
that tis sweethearts they wants. There's naught like it for the girl as is kicking up a buzz. Reynolds and the Woolies' central point is that as far as working people could see, the suffrage question had been got up by middle-class women with nothing better to do. Now, yes, this is three men writing. But as far as anyone can discover, it seems that even as late as 1911, this was a pretty widely held view. And we have to recognise that at this period, many women, including some of the most influential, educated and articulate professional women, loudly proclaimed that they had no desire at all to be like men or to do what men did. Annie Mobley, who was the manager of the Times' cousin and founder of St Hugh's College, Oxford, wanted nothing to do with women's votes, nor did most of the other blue-stocking ladies she knew in the university, including my great-great-aunt, who eventually succeeded in becoming a student at Mobley's St Hugh's. Or take Gertrude Bell was one of the first graduates from Lady Margaret Hall in Oxford. What is it about everyone called Bell or Mobley? <laughs> she went on not only to become an archaeologist, but also a photographer, translator and cartographer. In fact, Gertrude Bell was the first person to climb Mont Blanc and several other alpine peaks. On one occasion, waiting out a blizzard for two days, dangling on a rope. As you do. She played a large role in founding a modern Iraq and worked with Lawrence of Arabia. In fact, she was the first woman officer in British intelligence. Gertrude Bell could not be described as a shrinking violet. But Gertrude Bell was energetically opposed to votes for women, even in the Church of England. A formidable study by historian Julia Bush, Women Against the Vote, shows that by 1914, the number of women actively campaigning against women voting in parliamentary elections was pretty much the same as those campaigning for it. That's amazing. These women were what we would nowadays call difference feminists. They crisply and articulately made the point that they wanted to be recognised as equal to men, but different from them. And they had no interest at all in voting. Well, now it becomes obvious why the leaders of the political parties didn't want to give any parliamentary time to women's votes. Because there was no measurable public demand for it. In 1906, the new Liberal Prime Minister, Henry Campbell Bannerman, received a large deputation of campaigners from all quarters of the suffrage campaign. He freely agreed with them that they had made a conclusive and irrefutable case. But even though the Liberals had just been elected on a landslide and a large majority of Liberal MPs were in favour of women's votes, Campbell Bannerman didn't commit himself to doing anything. He politely served tea to his room full of lady campaigners and then waved them off, telling them to go on pestering. So this was the heart of the problem. No public interest in women's votes. No reason for a government to do anything. What we're discovering is that by 1900, campaigners for women's votes faced a very particular problem. The difficulty wasn't winning a majority in Parliament. That already existed. It was getting governments to do anything about it. Look, why should governments bother? Beyond a relatively small number of enthusiastic campaigners, there was far too little interest in women's votes among the public at large for governments to do anything. And quite a lot of opposition, including opposition from women themselves. Now, there were a number of ways for campaigners to solve this problem. One was to get ordinary MPs to bring in their own legislation, whatever the government said, so-called private members' bills. And that was exactly what MPs had been doing. 
by 1900, there had been 35 of them. But to bring a private member's bill to Parliament, an MP had to win a ballot. And then his bill was given just a short allocation of parliamentary time to debate, beginning, for some reason, on the fifth Wednesday afternoon of each parliamentary session. But these private members' bills were extremely easy for opponents of women's votes to sabotage. All they had to do was to keep on and on debating the bill that came up before in the queue, and then there would be no time left to consider women's suffrage. So, for example, one Wednesday in March 1893, MPs spent an interminable afternoon discussing the rating of machinery. Whatever that may be. Yeah. In May 1905, MPs spent four hours with much laughter and, according to the Times, quotes, ministerial cheers, you can imagine it, discussing the details of lamps for moving vehicles. Every time it was just a way to run the clock down so there was no time left to discuss women's votes. On other occasions, the government unaccountably announced it suddenly had more important business to conduct or that it intended, at some ill-defined point in the future to bring in a bill of its own, so there was no point in talking about a private bill for women's votes. By 1900, it was already becoming obvious that getting women's votes through a private member's bill was never going to work. As Sir William Harcourt, who was Liberal leader of the House, declared one Wednesday in February 1897, as he voted against yet another private member's women's franchise bill, it may be a good or a bad thing, but it's not a thing to be disposed of on a Wednesday afternoon. (laughs) No. It ought to be produced on the authority of a responsible government. Well, that left franchise campaigners with just two options. One was to win such massive public support for women's votes that the papers, the government, everything had to fall into line. That had been everyone's aim. But it was clearly, given all the damning evidence of public indifference, going to take a very long time. In 1900, they were nowhere close. So if you wanted votes for women in your lifetime, that left just one possibility. The only quicker approach was to target the party leaderships directly and convince them that vote for women would mean more votes for them. One thing that political history consistently teaches us is this. The key to significant change is that the leadership of the party and government has to be put in a position where they themselves have more to gain from change than to lose. So it was this that the Pankhurst new WSBU had to do after 1903 when it was founded. Not to shake up some sleepy campaign that was going nowhere, in Parliament at least it had been doing very well. Nor did they even necessarily have to win the public debate. That was a long-term aim. What they had to do, very precisely, was to make the government of the day, whichever party it came from, believe that it had more to gain from giving women the vote than to lose. And that's what the Pankhurst and their WSPU set out to do, at least from 1905, when they suddenly adopted different tactics from everyone else, as we shall see next time at the History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafé.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod. <laughs>